Welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. Featuring sysadmin expert, Don Pizzette. Security specialist, Daniel Lowry. And Peter. Hello and welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, joined as always by Don Pizzette. Don, how's it going? It is going great. You know, it is a beautiful, stormy, rainy day outside, and so what better time to celebrate Cybersecurity Month than uh, right now? But it's winter here now. Like, the high's in the low 80s. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Grab your coat. It's nice. Yeah, yeah it's a good time. And, and Still, Daniel, like, 98% humidity, though. Yeah, yeah sure. So. Yeah. There's I no think side. that just means we're swimming at that point, so <laughs> good to have you here, Daniel. And we're also joined by Brandon Hoffman, who is the CISO over at Net Enrich up in Chicago, and probably pretty upset that we're making jokes about a mild winter. What, what is it up there right now, Brandon? Yeah, hey guys, thanks for having me. It's actually not too bad right now, although it did drop into the 40s uh, pretty recently, which was unexpected. Uh, I'll guess nothing should be unexpected, but uh, it's back in the 70s today, so we're working on a win. Yeah, the 40s, <laughs> that's when you take out the wool flip-flops uh, <laughs> down here. But, you Floridian. Uh, yeah, well, uh, th thank you so much for joining us, Brandon, but we want to get to know a little bit more about you. So let's just go ahead and jump in with our first segment, Rapid Fire Questions. Who do you work for? What's new? Who are you? What's happening? What's wrong with you? <laughs> All right, so in our Rapid Fire segment, what we're going to do is ask a couple of questions. You'll have approximately one minute to answer each one. If you go over, Peter's got a buzzer ready to buzz at you, uh, maybe. There we go. Uh, <laughs> and we'll continue on. Uh, we're going to rotate through people. I think Peter's going to go with our first question. Peter, what do you got? Sure. So uh, basically, you know, I, I went on the Net Enrich site, but uh, kind of help me out. Where, where does Net Enrich uh, fit in the security landscape? Yeah, so Net Enrich offers uh, what we call Intelligent SOC. And Intelligent SOC is similar to uh, Managed SOC. But it has uh, different layers to it that people can consume um, as standalone products, but also has a lot of advanced components and, of course, a ser service delivery component for the customers who don't have enough uh, security people on staff to, to do it themselves or maybe to augment some of the work that those good folks are doing. All right. Now, I know you've been with Net Enrich uh, just for a brief while, a handful of months. Uh, there are a number of different managed socks that are out there. What was it about Net Enrich that kind of drew you in? Yeah, so what, what drew me in about NetEnrich is actually the future vision of the company. Uh, from a strategic perspective, we're building a, a platform that leverages, you know, all the, the modern technologies, AI and machine learning and uh, AI ops, you know, things like that. And uh, we're taking things not just from security, but also from net ops and cloud ops really across the IT space and trying to solve problems more holistically. So security is one piece of it. Uh, we're going to continue to solve those problems and deliver more advanced capabilities there. But ultimately, it's going to dovetail into this bigger platform to really help drive resolution in IT uh, long term. So I thought that was a really interesting vision. And technically, it's um, it's going to be quite a journey. Now, Brandon, little known fact, I'm not aware if you're aware or not, but there is a bit of a, uh, a sickness going around here lately. And it has changed many people's attack surfaces. What would you say is the biggest change that you've seen uh, since COVID has started? Well, obviously, the work from home is a huge thing and uh, the thing that people i think have to keep in mind is not just the people who are doing the you know who are working on their laptops in, in all departments that are working from home it's also the security professionals so they might be used to having specific access to tools uh being able to take control of machines or maybe even physically take a machine and now those security professionals are not working from home so they have to find new ways uh to find things new ways to do things and of course 
having this diaspora of people um, creates more attack surface because home networks are not as well protected, obviously, as corporate networks. So it creates more opportunity for cyber criminals um, to do what they do best. Wait, so you're home right now? Because that looks like an industrial-level <laughs> coffee machine behind you. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> it's serious business. In, uh, in in my basement, it's serious. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. I want to I work from that. He's like, home. are you hiring? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so last year, if you'd asked someone to predict what's going to happen in the security uh, in the security world over the next year, they probably would have been wrong. Uh, so we're going to put you on the spot. At, you know, as someone that's been in the industry for a while, uh, what do you see changing? What do you, what do you see coming uh, in 2021 in terms of whether it's new attack vectors or, or new ways people are protecting themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one, and I'll probably be wrong too, but I'll give it a shot. Um, you know, I don't know that the work from home phenomenon is going to go away next year if it goes away at all. So I think the the number one challenge that people are going to face in that regard, from a security perspective specifically, is all the investment that we've made in all the different tools and the architectures that we've built, uh, it's all going to really change uh, because this this layer of security in between uh, work from home, it, it doesn't really exist in the way that we need it to. So really next year, I think there's going to be a huge initiative to re-architect um, how security works in a business that's mostly remote business uh, that we haven't had to deal with in the past. So I think there's going to be uh, a big shift in that regard to understand, okay, what investments have we made in security tools and processes and people that we can keep? Uh, and we have to build this new architecture going forward How's that going to change uh, the tooling that you buy, um, how the processes are going to work, um, how you're going to leverage uh, more modern tools? I think that there was uh, there's a lot of new security technology that people probably have been waiting to um, to adopt because they didn't really have a need for it. Uh, you know, more API driven security focused tools and things like that. And I think they're going to be forced to start adopting that sooner than they plan to. And I think that's going to all start happening next year. You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about some of the different jobs where, as a as a society, we were in a pretty good place to flip into work from home. There were some careers, obviously, that were devastated, but there were many careers that had already been kind of set up for that. So, you know, like if I was a salesperson, well, I have phones and email at work. I have phones and email at home, so it's not, it's not a big transition. probably VoIP anyway. Uh, yeah, phone, yeah. So. And most of it's switched over. It's not like it's the old PRIs and T1 lines and all that mess. Uh, if I am a customer support, again, I, the phone's here, phone's at home. But what about security professionals? You know, you work in the security industry. You're a CISO. Uh, have you been able to just snap into that working from home no problem? Or are you finding that there are tools and things? And specifically, I'm thinking of like, if I was responsible for security at work, I might have approved IP addresses for running scans. And then I go home and I don't have those approved IP addresses. So uh, have you run into any challenges with that? Yeah, those are all, that's exactly what I was, uh, exactly right. Those are the types of things that I was alluding to is that we, we've all built this security architecture to work in a specific way, right? To scan from a certain place, to quarantine a certain thing, um, to fl have traffic flow a specific direction. All those things are gonna have to change. So we're all facing those challenges. And what happened in the past couple months, at least with me and, uh, and some of the colleagues that I've spoken to, is that um, we've kind of had to build crutch architecture, right? So we have to just make it work with what we have. Um, but all that's going to have to change next year if, you know, if we if it doesn't go back to quote unquote you know, normal. <laughs> would you think that it would be uh, reasonable? I mean, well, I used to work for an insurance company. We had a lot of satellite offices and they were using, you know, whatever broadband solution that they had available for those offices to connect with. And we just did a, a basically a split tunnel through a firewall with things like PF sense. Would that be something to where 
if the company doesn't have to spend money on brick and mortar infrastructure, could they spend money on sending out like very reasonably priced firewall solutions to homes so that they could better secure them, use something like split tunneling so that they don't have to worry about non-work function, that kind of thing. Is, is that something that might be the future? Yeah. I, it's funny you bring that up. I actually literally just had this conversation <laughs> last week with a buddy of mine is like, why can't we just, you know, build a bunch of cheap Raspberry Pis or, you know, like you said, PFSense, you know, and just send these out to all the users. And I think that's a viable option to a degree. I think one of the challenges we're going to have is, you know, most users aren't technically savvy. So what happens when they plug it into their home network and then something goes wrong, hmm. right? Uh, they're not, they're not capable of troubleshooting it themselves, troubleshooting something like that over the phone, which is core to the connectivity also creates a challenge, right? Because if there's no connectivity, how are you going to troubleshoot it? So I think to a degree, if they if we can really design something that's really plug and play, super low failure rate, easy to use, um, and provides the security we need, I think that's a viable option. Um, I think also what's going to happen is um, people are going to start inserting layers of security. So how people connect to um, you know the traditional infrastructure that they need to, wherever that might be. I think we're going to see more cloud tunneling solutions, more of that modern VPN technology that's less dependent on infrastructure, I think that's going to start getting leveraged too. Hmm. You know, it, it's almost sad. Uh, for the last couple of years at RSA and Black Hat and conferences like that, we have been force-fed this whole story about how you, you really need uh, artificial intelligence-driven uh, intrusion prevention on your, your network. You need these devices that are watching the routine traffic, looking for anomalies and filtering that out. You know, that's, that's how you're going to stop the bad guys is looking for anomalies. But that stuff takes time to train, three months, six months. You've got to let it run, learn your network, really tune it. And then all of a sudden you have this pandemic hit and all that training is out the window. All those devices have to start over again on this whole new way that data is moving through the network. So it's really interesting times. And I'm, I'm curious to see how 2021 goes. Yeah, going back to, to your point, Don, too, about, you know, changing when you get home. Like when I went went home for the first day, I mean, I didn't have uh, I mean, all my passwords are on Post-its on the desk at work. <laughs> and I get home and I can't get into anything. So, yeah, we, I can definitely uh, see what you're saying there. That's a big issue. Uh, well, I want to I want to jump over while we have a security expert here. No offense, Daniel. Um, I want to uh, I want to get your take on uh, an article this week and see who got pwned. Looks like you're about to get pwned. Fatality. Yeah! All right, so this article comes from ZDNet.com. This worm phishing campaign is a game changer in password theft and account takeovers. The security incident highlights the need for multi-factor authentication in the enterprise. So, Don, can you kind of walk us through first uh, sure. what we're talking about here? So there was a, a security organization, uh, not not NetEnrich, but uh, a different <laughs> one, that was responding to a uh, an account takeover. Right, business email compromise is pretty common these days. Phishing attacks are just ubiquitous. I get phishing attacks every single day in my mailbox. It's kind of routine now. Uh, but in this case, they noticed something bizarre, which was that it was an incredibly effective phishing campaign. And what they found is they dug down into it that these weren't just like cold call emails, you know, a random email you get out of the middle of nowhere. What they found was that somebody had basically written a bot where they performed a phishing attack and compromised one mailbox. And once they had that one mailbox compromised, they then monitored email for it over time. They were very patient. And their bot was set to automate it in a way where it would wait for existing communications to happen. And then, you know, emails might, might go back and forth three or four times as people have a conversation. And it would wait until a little further in the communication, and then it would reply. And so that gave it a level of credibility. You know, when, when people just get an email out of the blue, 
they can be distrustful. But when it's the fifth reply in an email chain and it's coming from a legitimate mailbox, they're a little more willing to believe that's a legitimate email. And it contained a link that would say, you know, you, you need to access this document, click on this link, and then people would click on it, provide their credentials, leading to more accounts getting taken over. And so what they found was it was just an incredibly effective and somewhat ingenious phishing attempt that goes a little bit beyond what most of the phishing attempts have done so far. So Brandon is... Uh uh, having a, a dedicated sock is that something that's going to be able to, you know, identify something like this and uh, and and help you out? Yeah, I mean, I think that to a degree, some advanced analytics that we have in the sock. I mean, you know, we we talked a little bit earlier about you know learning and the machine learning, the AI, and how it has to learn the behavior, and a lot of that got thrown away with the work from home. But you know, having um, all the telemetry, including email traffic. Um, having that all folded into one place where you can run those advanced analytics still has significant value. Um, would it stop a phishing attack like that? I don't know that it would necessarily stop a phishing attack like that because I think we've kind of all accepted that phishing is going to happen and people are going to click on things. And that's why the focus is really around what they're doing with the phishing. So when you talk about password theft to fuel account takeover and brute forcing of accounts, things like that, that's something for sure. Um, having a centralized, you know, having something like a SOC with advanced analytics can do looking at, you know, has this user logged in here before? How many times have they tried to log in? And taking automated, you know, remediation against that so that the brute force attack is not successful. This, of course, assumes that people continue to ignore the advice to do multi-factor authentication. Yeah, and this was one of those scenarios where it all did start with one mailbox getting compromised. And if they had multi-factor authentication turned on, that wouldn't have happened. And this whole attack would have been thwarted. So like the technology to prevent this is out there. Although, you know, I, I look at some of this and I think about I think about the old days, right? In the old days, if I worked in a company and I wanted to share a file with somebody, we would have like um, mailbox size limits of 10 megabytes or something really <laughs> low. So you had a centralized file share and you would drop it on your S drive or whatever it was, and then other people in the office could browse to it and access it there. And so you kind of knew, like, this was the trusted location for files in my network, and if the file wasn't in that location, then I didn't trust where it came from. But today we have cloud storage, right? Stuff is stored in OneDrive or Dropbox or you know whatever else it is that we're using. So it's, it's pretty common for me to get an email with a link out to an attachment that's on some completely separate service. And I think, there's advantages to the cloud and that, you know, certainly a convenient side, but there's a lot of risk to it too. And, and this kind of played on that risk. People expect to see a link to, to files now. Yeah, definitely. And, and Brandon, getting back to, um, to, to socks in general, I'm kind of curious because I don't really, I, I'm not really sure at what stage is a company big enough to have one, or I guess kind of that's where you fit in for the companies that maybe don't have one in-house and want to, want to outsource that, uh, that model. So kind of where do you fit in there? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple there's a couple different schools of thought on it, or a couple different ways that you can apply uh, our solution to this problem. You know, there's the big the big of the bigs, right? Who've, who've invested millions of dollars? They have a sock. It's running, but the problem is that it's not running efficiently. So there are certain tasks, there are certain layers of tasks, right, that you can have other people do um, and uh, not consume the expensive resources that you've invested in, meaning people, right, to run the sock. Um, takes a lot of people. So the people who've made big investments, uh, they might want their expensive people to be doing more advanced tasks than just looking at incidents, you know, in the sock, maybe they're going to be the ones resolving it. So in that case, a solution like ours is great for those folks. For the people who, you know, don't want to make the investment, can't make the investment, um, or can't have the people to do it, we're a great uh, source to, to solve that problem for them.
So it's really anybody. I mean, it doesn't matter how, how small or how big you can kind of help them out in, in some yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. and it, it's certainly not something you want to screw up. So, you know, if yeah. you're looking at implementing your own security operations center, then, like, it, there's a lot of mistakes that can be made. And if you make a mistake in that area in these days, that's going to result in a breach, compromise of customer PII, a huge PR event. Like, that, that's all stuff you want to avoid. So leveraging professionals is, I, I think, an important step any company can take. Well, if people want to reach out to Net Enrich, what's the best way for them to find you guys? Yeah, um, just go to netandrich.com. Um, all the information is is held there. Of course, you can look any of us up on LinkedIn. Uh, we're doing a Bright Talk session for part of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month um, on October 13th about smart devices, which plays directly into part of the conversation we have about working from home and everybody's got their coffee machine, you know, whoops, over here, you know, connected and they've got everything connected to the internet and that just creates more attack surface. So it's going to be a great talk. Uh, we'd love to have a chat with anybody about it. It, wait, is that one online? <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm like, it's right there. You can, you can touch a button, but if it is, what port? Uh... You, could, you could make a coffee on it, but it won't deliver it to you. So no. Yeah, what's the point at that point? I know. Yeah. <laughs> what a piece of crap. Yeah, I think, I think uh, that's kind of a big focus this month. I know we're, we're doing a, an IoT webinar as well, where Daniel's going to be hacking a, a FOSCAM, uh, an IP camera. And uh, I mean, honestly, that could be anything, though. It could be a fridge. It could be a, a toaster or I mean, that's the example everyone uses, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the devices are all over your house. So uh, that's a great idea to check that out. And so, yeah, head over to Ned and Rich and, and uh, check that out and, and check out the webinar as well. But um, Brandon, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to join us today and give us your perspective. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm a fan of the show, so appreciate it being here. Oh, wow. That's flattering. It was nice to have a real security expert on today. <laughs> now now right. we know what now, we should be getting from Daniel. Yeah. Now Daniel's going to be bitter <laughs> for the rest of the show, and we got to deal with that. Well, Listen, as soon as you give me that CISO title, that's true. Yeah. you can expect that level. No, you can be the, then uh, you're qualified. Then you're qualified. Yeah, right? the head of security Until then, strategy. just some guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, th thanks again, Brandon, for joining us. And uh, stay tuned, everybody. We've got more Technado with Don Pizzette coming up right after this quick break. IT pros who want to learn on the go? The IT Pro TV Android app is for you. Now it's better than ever with the dashboard view built in. Easily resume viewing, see new courses as they're added, and track your hours viewed. Start up your next episode with the touch of a button to binge watch on the go. Track your progress at a glance, and download episodes as an annual member for offline viewing. Access all IT Pro TV courses with a simple button. Choose landscape mode for larger viewing. Choose your course by category, certification, or job role. Watch anywhere and pick up later on your favorite devices. So head to the App Store and download the IT Pro TV app. All right, welcome back to TechNet with Tom Pizzette, and thank you so much to Brandon Hoffman for joining us from Net and Rich and uh, telling us all about socks and, and why we need them. Yeah, Keep not, your feet warm. Yeah. That's, and why you always lose one in the dryer. Yeah. yeah. Just make sure you wash. I'm not a huge fan of blisters either, so. Wash your sock. <laughs> uh, all right, well, let's go ahead. Uh, we've got a lot of news to get to, but <clears throat> actually, first, we're going to look back uh, at a recent news article in our favorite news segment, Deja News. Deja News. 
All right, so this one uh, is from ZDNet as well. We're looking at Microsoft's Azure AD authentication outage. What went wrong? It's been a rough week for Microsoft users who have uh, first and third-party apps that rely on Azure Active Directory for authentication. And Microsoft has published a root cause analysis of the issues. And I, I know originally we thought it was uh, something that they rolled out because they immediately started rolling back a problem. It, it, did that turn out to be the, the real issue, Don? Sort of, yes. Uh, so we, we do have a little more clarity into what happened, so we know why that rollback didn't work. Uh, it's kind of interesting. So there, there's a lot of IT environments where you have a test environment, a dev environment, staging, production, right? So nothing makes it into production until it's been through testing in, in these various other stages. Well, Microsoft has that too. They actually have five different stages that changes go through before they make it into production. And they call this their safe deployment process, or SDP. Well, it turns out they were doing a routine update to Azure AD, and they were deploying this change to the very first of the rings. So, you know, they've got five different rings to get through. This is just a ring number one where they, they test it out. And there was a bug in their SDP. And the bug caused that change to roll straight into production <laughs> and, and basically affect the entire planet. Uh, so they knew within five minutes that things were screwed up. Well, you say affect the entire planet. I know you were kidding, but this affected America more than, what's it, Europe and, and Asia, I right? I think it was just the rollout delay. I think ultimately oh, this would okay. have affected everywhere. It would everywhere. have affected, yeah. Yep. Uh, so, you know, it just completely bypassed all of their protections that they had in place and went straight into production. So when they went to roll it back, the problem is it was a problem in their deployment uh, system. So the rollback was looking at the right ring and not looking at production. And so the changes weren't supposed to be in production in the first place, so that's why they couldn't roll it back effectively. So they thought they had rolled it back, but really hadn't. And then they had to basically get in there and manually do it. And when we talk about manually doing something across thousands of servers all across the globe, like that's a big deal. And that's why this outage kind of dragged on for about eight hours. Uh, so it was it was kind of a big one for them. It wasn't you know, a full outage. They were able to try and compensate different ways. But it is neat to be able to get a little bit of insight into you know the way their, their back end is normally protecting us and see how that totally failed this time. Now, Don, Don, in my WSUS server, I just hit that rollback button and it's gone. I'm good to go. <laughs> Why didn't they just do that? Yeah. So, you know, WSUS. <laughs> They're not using that? <laughs> well, you know, a, a lot of these servers are Hyper-V servers that are, are running Active Directory on top. And so it is all in Windows, so in, in theory. But they're rolling out not just like bug fixes and things that are officially right. approved. These are things that are testing. And, and this being the very first ring, it, it's not it's not unexpected they wouldn't have good rollback stuff put in place oh, for it. But right. to jump not just one ring, not two rings, but like jump five rings all the way straight into production, seems like there should be something to prevent that from happening. I can't wait to see who gets fired. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. it feels like someone is going to go to work for another company. Well, I think very they'll be shortly. sent down to the seventh ring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, it's probably what's going to happen. There's the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Right? Where, is that, yeah. <laughs> How cool would that be? Like if somebody at Microsoft had had read Dante's Inferno and named <laughs> right. each of the rings after the layers of hell. Yeah, it would be kind of funny. <laughs> Well, the, uh, so the safe deployment process, not so safe this time around. So does, does it sound like th that system worked, though, originally as planned? Because there was a, a bug in the update, so yeah. there's not but, a problem with the SDP. Well, I, I think the SDP worked up until now, and then there was something wrong in the SDP that had just gone unnoticed, and that's what led to this problem. So 
I, I think that the the update they were writing had problems, but that's to be expected when you're going into the first ring. And then SDP just borked it and, and allowed it to go right into production. So two two different problems compounded, and it does highlight how important, even outside of the cloud, like in your native stuff you have deployed locally on-prem, you should have a staging environment where you test things before it goes into production, and this highlights the importance of that. It'll be interesting also, like, legitimately to see how this, well, if we ever do get to see how that affects policy at Microsoft, like, we cannot allow something of this magnitude to happen again. The fact that it was able to jump through all those rings and hit production should have never been. So right. why did that happen? Okay, now let's fix it so that never occurs. Okay. I'm guessing there will be more people that have to turn their key at the same time yeah. to make the next update happen. Well, th this is a challenge with cloud directories is, you know, how do you set up a staging environment for your directory server? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. And it looks like, at least in this case, that you know maybe there's not a true separation between those environments. Mm -hmm. you, you get a lot of bleed over. The, the cloud is very hard to set up separate environments for. Well, I will say kudos to Microsoft for sharing how this happened because yeah. this had been, you know, the U.S. government or something. We would have no <laughs> clue what was going on still. And uh, pour one out for my Microsoft homies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And don't don't pour it out on your laptop. Yeah, no, I won't. Doing that. Okay, because that's that's bad. All right, our next article then, or our first article, I should say, uh, in our regular news is over at TheVerge.com. Windows on ARM is about to get lots of apps thanks to new <coughs> x64 emulation. Microsoft is giving Windows on ARM a much-needed boost. So I know this is something we talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. I, I think more with Mac too, of of you know bringing 32-bit things over to 64, and so so this emulator is letting that happen on a uh, on an ARM chip then, which is going to open up pretty it's much everything, deal. right? Yeah. yeah, you know, we talked about it a while back that most operating systems had made the change from 32-bit to 64-bit, and they were in the process of killing off 32-bit apps. Well, now they're switching to ARM. Up until now, you just had a 32-bit x86 emulator on ARM, and so these old apps that were being killed off were the only things that would work that, that weren't native ARM libraries, right? Well, Microsoft has rolled out a, a demo, uh, basically, of their 64-bit emulator. And so they've shown it off. It's going into some of the fast ring testing right now. And that means, like, uh, devices like the Surface, uh, what is it, Surface Pro X that I've made fun of, um, <laughs> it's got an ARM processor in it, so it can't run crap. Well, now it actually can run some things. Uh, we don't have any information on performance yet, so I'm waiting to see how well this emulation layer works. But if it does work out, this will help ease that transition over to ARM processors. How does that work? Is that emulating it on the device, or is it like in the, through the cloud somehow? So that they haven't released the details on it, but it pretty much needs to do it on the device. That uh, Typically, the software you're going to want to emulate is software like Adobe Photoshop or something that, that you need up and running that's going to have its own licensing requirements. Mm. And so running it in the cloud and bringing it down local is not usually an option. Mm. Yeah. It just seems like it's... Uh, I, we keep talking about all these ARM-based devices now, and that's becoming more and more popular. And everything I'm seeing is uh, apparently because less power cheaper so for the end user me and you out there we really benefit from having arm-based devices and now that we're seeing more and more porting of apps and things of that nature to come over into that sphere really makes this uh, a win-win for us uh, is what it's what i'm seeing yeah yeah you know the intel processors are great but they've become increasingly less efficient over the years. I mean, you've seen the size of heat sinks growing and yeah. growing and growing, the number of fans in your case growing and growing. They, they just can't, they, they generate too much heat. 
and Intel hasn't done enough to correct for that. Whereas ARM, you can have 128 cores and still have passive cooling. Will they emulate all my buffer overflows that I've created in x86 architecture, or do I have to rewrite those? Uh, you know, I think uh, I think some rewrites might be in oh, order. Crap. But I'm sure they have all new ones. It's, <laughs> it's a brave new world. It is. Well, this that. is great too for the new devices, isn't it? What's the Surface D Duo? Is it that? Oh yeah, the two screen thing. Uh, uh, yeah, the Duo runs Android. It's an ARM device. Uh, I doubt it's powerful enough to do emulation like this. Oh okay. But but we'll see. It, it's just unlikely. So should I? Bust back out my old original Surface RT. Well, now the the Surface Neo that's supposed that was supposed to come out here in a few months, but now it's pushed back to next year. That one's running Windows X or Windows 10. You know, it is no one knows. Windows, I don't know, whatever, 10X, uh, 10XL, double XL. I still don't know if I have an <laughs> iPhone X or an iPhone 10. Magic Mike XL. Something. There you go. Yep. <laughs> so uh, so when that one comes out, it would certainly benefit from this if they did an ARM processor. But I think they were still leaning towards Intel and AMD for that. All right, cool. So so this is just an announcement at this point, and we'll learn more. Uh, as we get to some of those uh, yep. releases, and so yeah, that'll be cool though. That's uh, definitely kind of opens up those to to a much bigger market, I think. So that's good for them. Uh, and on the flip side is our next article over at the USA Today, where we always go for our tech news. <laughs> AT and T is shelving DSL and may leave hundreds of thousands hanging by a phone line. And mm. I, you know, I, I get the move. It's probably not a money maker for them, but it seems kind of um, I don't want to say dickish. <laughs> uh, but, you know, during a, a time when so many people are working from home and, and doing school from home, uh, and, uh, Internet connectivity has been an issue for so many people. Of, uh, you know, and this this might be the only option a lot of people have, I think. Yeah, you know, DSL has some challenges, right? So uh, when it first came out, it was impressive, especially compared to dial-up, right? Dial-up, you were lucky to get 33.6K, uh, you know, kilobits per second. Uh, but with DSL, you'd routinely get 2 megabit, 4, 6, 10, maybe even 15 megabit of bandwidth out of it. And that just blew away dial-up. But that's where that technology stopped. It stayed there for the last 20 years and has not really advanced beyond it. And you had distance limitations. You had to live within two miles of a D-slam, like a, a central hub, uh, to be able to even get DSL at all. Well, in rural communities where you already had phone lines run, this technology dropped in and it worked out well. But since it hasn't picked up, it hasn't increased over a really important number, which is 25 megabit, it doesn't actually qualify as broadband anymore, uh, according to the, the FCC. And that's put AT&T in a spot where they don't get credit for it as far as uh, FCC's requirement for a rural broadband. So there's really no incentive for AT&T to keep working on it. And they've been pushing out fiber in more and more markets where you get gigabit. And so this is old technology. Uh, so what they've said is starting October 1, uh, so it's already started, they will continue supporting existing DSL, but they are not selling DSL subscriptions to anyone anymore. So if you've got it, you get to keep it. Are they going to maybe upgrade those customers to try to phase out DSL and give them a higher level of, of service? Well, they've oh. got to run fiber lines for that. Yeah. That's the issue. Yep. So. Yeah, fiber is their offer. They also have satellite internet, which, uh, you know, Roddy no, there's Wong. Not, there's no such thing as satellite internet. It doesn't exist. <laughs> well, he will attest to how painful <laughs> yeah. it is. Um, but, you know, they are obviously pushing fiber, but they're not running fiber out into rural areas. And that's why the article is saying it's leaving some people hung by a, a phone line is they can go back to dial-up, but it's hard to find dial-up service anymore. Yes, yeah, true. Yeah, I, thought, I thought Daniel was saying that satellite doesn't exist because we're on a flat Earth, and how are you going to have something <laughs> well, there, circling that? that so, uh, yeah. Well, obviously. It would keep running into the turtle, <laughs> you know, if the satellite That's holding around. everybody up, yeah. Is it a turtle or an elephant? I yeah. thought it was an elephant. There's, uh, there's both of them right there. There's a lot sure, of theories, yeah. and, you know— the, 
science isn't it's still out on this uh-huh. yeah we're not sure I mean, what good are scientists maybe, they can't tell if, if it's an elephant yeah. or a turtle holding maybe up the it's earth. both who yeah. knows Ooh, an yeah. elephant with a turtle shell holding right. up an elephant holding a turtle up yeah, yeah. could be could be yeah. there's just possibilities around all this. i know is stay away from the edge you heard it here first on technado <laughs> all right well i uh I, I doubt a lot of people listening still have dsl but uh <laughs> you can't anyway. yeah no, so. they, they still get it right they still yeah, you support still, if you got it. it you can yeah. keep it until eventually I've, I'm, yeah. I'm sure we'll have an article in 10 years uh, they're just snatching you know, the right they're going, the last person just gone off DSL <laughs> yeah well, I, I bet AT&T and everybody was probably hoping that 5G would be further along right now mm. and just say, just hey, these guys can use cellular internet. Uh, but that's, you know, we're, we're still years off from that. Yeah, we're, we're going to need some more towers and Listen, people keep burning them down. Mm-hmm. I was at the Verizon store just the other week and they had it on good authority that 5G was moments away. From being available. Oh, shit. <laughs> Hold your breath. That's what I, I was like, hmm. I've been hearing that a long time, brother. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Maybe that's why they yeah. delayed the iPhone launch, because uh. 5Gs just aren't just aren't ready. Yeah, well. They got four of the Gs lined up. Yeah. Just cannot find that fifth one. Trying to get 5Gs all put together in one place is hard. Yeah. Have you ever seen 5Gs in a single Warren. spot? <laughs> Warren. <laughs> that's the only one I can think of right now. <laughs> Uh, uh, Ice T was the OG. Yeah, he was yeah. the OG. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, there's there's two. Okay. But you're right. I mean, it shows you how difficult right, this how can difficult be. Right. How difficult this is. Yeah. All right. Uh, our next article is from Kenny Tom's. G. <laughs> Kenny, oh, Kenny G. Kenny. <laughs> you're right. And getting Kenny and Warren in a room together. Oh man, yeah. that's that's fire. That's a that's a bomb waiting to go Did off Warren right there. Warren die or was it Nate Dog that died? Uh, one of them. That was away. Warren Sapp. <laughs> Warren Sapp, I believe, is alive and well. Apologize to his family. Uh, not that Warren Sapp. Oh, okay. The other Warren Sapp. Warren Sapp from middle school. Yeah, duh. <laughs> Remember, he built that hydrogen bomb. Oh, yeah. Blew himself to sure. hell. Yeah. All right, moving on. We'll take on. your word for it. Please. Yeah. Please, it's all over the on. news. Tomshardware.com is our next article. OWC unveils world's first Thunderbolt 4 hub. Three extra Thunderbolt ports and USB-A. OWC launches Thunderbolt Hub to connect all of your Thunderbolt devices. Um, but you have to use one of them for power, right? Well, so actually, interesting fact. No. Uh, yeah, so it's really cool. I have asked this ever since USB-C started coming out, is that nobody makes a USB-C hub, not a true hub, right? So if you plug this, you know, what they call a hub, into a USB-C port, maybe it gives you a memory card reader, uh, some USB-A ports, things like that. But nobody takes one USB-C port and turns it into three USB-C ports or, or whatever, right? So if you have one of those Macs that only has two USB-C ports, you're pretty much stuck at two. Welcome to my hell. Yeah. <laughs> so OWC has unveiled what is their flagging as the world's first Thunderbolt 4 hub. And granted, not every USB-C port is Thunderbolt 4, so keep that in mind. But Thunderbolt 4 gives you 40 gigabit of bandwidth, and they're running it into this hub that has an Intel chip inside of it that allows it to break out into three more USB-C ports that all support Thunderbolt, obviously at a, at a reduced bandwidth because you're kind of bottlenecking on that one uplink. Uh, but it it sends a message to the industry that, hey, this is possible. And OWC is doing it first, but it won't be long before you see Belkin and other people starting to release USB, uh, well, Thunderbolt 4 hubs. I'm excited for it. I, I would not buy this one. Uh, it is... <laughs> 
it's it's priced at 150 bucks, which is actually a, a really good price for a device like this. But OWC has a history of being like terrible with firmware updates. And so on a first-gen device, you don't want to buy it from OWC. But uh, in the future, as we see other companies releasing these, it'll be really handy. So I'm, I'm glad to see somebody is finally releasing this. Well, as somebody who has a MacBook with two USB-C ports and who works with connected dongly things, I will go ahead and say that I don't give a flying fornication <laughs> about having another device that I have to connect. I just want a flipping laptop with flipping <laughs> ports on it that just works. Yes. I don't care about the speed increases and all that stuff anymore. I, it's, it's so frustrating <laughs> to have to connect things to make my laptop do the things I want it to do that I, I'm just ready to move away from that. You know, and that's, I, I, I'm on my, I have my Lenovo T480, mm -hmm. which I know is getting a little bit long in the tooth, but I, I'm hesitant to give up this laptop because yeah. it's got so many ports. You're living the sweet life. That's I why. Know. <laughs> Come over to Danielville and <laughs> know the living no. hell. Yeah, it sounds that like Danielville too, sucks. Yeah, it does. It does. He has Giant, DSL sucky. and Danielville. Like you go to oh, Danielville, man. you got to like roll up your windows. You do. You better. Because yeah. we will straight up steal that Lenovo. <laughs> <laughs> Give me those ports. How many ports yeah. you got? Yeah. What you got in there, man? You got all my ports. So <laughs> so uh, I don't know how computers work uh, or, or uh, technology. Or wash so, between your legs yeah. and crotch. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Um, like there's a there's a speed um, maximum per, for each yes. port yeah. that you have. So like if I had three things to plug in and I had... Um, you know, the, one of these, uh, you know, hubs here. Should I put a couple of the things into my computer and then just less of them into the hub? It, it depends on if they're, if they're bandwidth heavy, right? So if you're hooking up a 4K monitor to that Thunderbolt port, it's going to consume 10 to 20 gig, depending on how the monitor is configured. Okay. So if What's I my have, max, like 40? Uh, this one maxes out at 40. So okay. you could actually have two 4K monitors running on it and be just fine, right? But let's say that uh, you had a third 4K monitor. You could plug well, that in here. But yeah, I know. But you know, you'll have a, a bandwidth issue. So at okay. that point, you'd want to plug one in locally to your machine if you can. Uh, and that was kind of the thing that that held us back with like the old hyperdrive and stuff was that it didn't give you more ports. It just passed through the existing ports that you had. So here, you actually end up with more ports, but you do have to think about bandwidth, power consumption. It does say it provides 15 watts of power on each of the ports. So so those those are, are good things. But there, there are limits to it. Yeah. So oh, they can keep right. going up on the number of ports, but it doesn't matter. If, and you, if and you have to plug it in, right? It has a, has a like a. This one looks like it has power. A power. A it's, yes, it's powered. Power. So yep. there's another thing to tether you to the like. Oh. It's just, again, it's just annoying. You would use this like a docking station. Yeah. 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 yeah you wouldn't take this unless you're me and you have to go into a studio and connect to things. Well, there's that. that Too bad. What, what's what's connected to? Personal problems, I, I think. No, what are you connected no. to? The internet and power. Hey, yeah. how do you think I'm connected to that IP camera on that webinar you're all hot and bothered about? <laughs> <laughs> I have a FOSCAM, and it does not have USB-C. <laughs> it does have a network cable, though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and a network Ethernet port, which my MacBook does not. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so yours only has two? I've got four. Yeah. What, what else do you have that I don't have, then? Mm. Do you still have an Nothing. SD card right here? Nope. Wait, you just have... I have two, two USB suits, and that's, that's it. That's it? That's it. Because that's what Johnny Ive said. What's on the yeah. other side? Absolutely nothing. nothing. It, if you have Headphone a touch jack. bar Mac, you get four oh. USB-C, but if you don't have the touch bar, but then you, you got two. But then you got to have a touch bar. How did I <laughs> yeah. get a nicer computer than Daniel? I would argue <laughs> that that was nicer. Well, the touch bar is garbage. Sounds like Daniel <laughs> is going to be leaving the Mac world soon. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, the touch bar, <laughs> I just programmed it, so it's an arrow pointing to my four ports. <laughs> That's just it. Got, it's like, two more ports over here. Yeah. So, you know. Why does your the, touch bar say, suck it, Daniel? <laughs> by the way, how many, th- how many devices do you have that are USB-C, by the way? Uh, my adapter. That's, my dongle. That's it. Yeah, that's another. <laughs> that, right. that is a good point. <laughs> all my all my dongles are USB C. Yeah, so, oh. that. so you can connect all your real devices. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's see. My um, my keyboard is is what is that USB A? My, my power adapter. Yeah, my power adapter. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Nope, nothing. There you go. My new YubiKey right. C. <laughs> Thank you, OWC. Yeah. <laughs> All right, our last and final article is over at tech.slashdot.org. Windows XP leak confirmed after user compiles the leaked code into a working OS. And I guess XP is kind of at that age where you start to expect leaks and uh, need to yeah. put on some protection <laughs> for that. Well, you know, this news actually broke last week, but I passed on it because it wasn't confirmed. Uh, that a huge leak of Microsoft source code was posted on 4chan, which is uh, another great source of That's news. still a thing? I thought uh, they got rid of that. That's never like going anywhere. Yeah. No, yeah. there is 8chan, oh, but, it, but, but 4chan the 4chan still, still exists, exists yes. Yeah. So so anyhow, it got posted there. Somebody grabbed all this source code, threw it onto a BitTorrent feed, and so it is being distributed. Uh, in it, it claimed to have the source code for a ton of stuff. Uh, DOS 6.0, Windows NT 3.51, Windows NT 4, NT 2000, or Windows 2000, uh, and Windows XP, just the straight-up source code. Uh, a couple of Microsoft employees off the record said it looked like incomplete code, but this week... Someone took the code and actually compiled it into a working operating system, proving that it is the legit stuff. The source code of Windows XP has leaked. Uh, why is this a news article, right? Yeah, Windows XP is not supported know. anymore. Who cares? I'm going to start selling my own XP. <laughs> the problem is a lot of technology used in Windows XP is still used in Windows 10. You know, Windows 10 is not like some fresh new rewrite of everything. So, you know, it, it still relies on some things inside of it that are uh, just part and parcel of Windows XP. So the theory, and, and we'll see what Daniel thinks because he'll have a different perspective on this, mm-hmm. is potentially attackers could use this, you know, dig through the Windows XP source code to locate vulnerabilities that weren't noticed before and see if those still exist in Windows 10. Uh, Daniel, is that a realistic fear? I mean, that it, it seems plausible, at least, um, that that would be the case. It just depends on how much code base is being shared between XP and the current version of Windows or any of the other versions in between, I guess that would also be something you have to look out for because if that's what they're doing, they're basically building off of previous versions and, hey, this is not broke, so we're not going to fix it, but we are sure as hell going to add it to the next version of our operating system, then yeah, if you find something that's wrong and it shares that code base with any of the other operating systems, it, it should, in theory, work. You should probably just have to do some minor modifications to for architecture or environmental things that, that could cause it to be a problem. But Yeah, I think if you think back to Windows XP and, and what's been added since then, right? So Windows XP had user account control added as an afterthought, right? It was bolted mm-hmm. on in like Service Pack 2. And the Windows firewall was bolted on in Service Pack 3. So that stuff wasn't originally coded in the OS. And then starting with Windows Vista, you know, Windows 7, Windows 10, now, all that stuff is built in by default. So there have been a lot of security features added since Windows XP was, was you know, reached Service Pack 3 and end of life and all that. So I imagine if you start digging through the code and locating vulnerabilities, many of them are probably mitigated by stuff we have in place now. Yeah, but then, then you see things like, like, you know, like Deja Blue or the, um, 
when we just got the zero log on, right? Is that going to be a problem? Like this, that that translates yeah. backwards, right? That's been around so a long, long time. That seems like oh, if it works on ten and it works on seven and or eight and XP, uh, so that would make me think that there are some lurking problems that just haven't been discovered and now could possibly be yeah and we'd see a new wormable type of uh, malware or something and with a compiled os they would have to do like fuzzing or something to be able to try and find this but now if they can just look at the source code they can go crazy yeah and i guess they would look for there's easy stuff like it's easy to spot a variable that's not typed right and so you can do a buffer overflow or something right right? that's easy to find yeah you'll see those things that just kind of stick out because they thought well it's you know, it's buried in, or you just missed it because there's a lot of code that's going on there. You got multiple developers working on things. Uh, this millions is, of lines of code. Right. This is why we are doing, or you should be doing, you know, static code analysis, having people look over that things and make that part of your uh, secure SDLC. Yeah. So. Yeah. And Windows XP was written at a time when Microsoft was not security focused, right? Remember, no, right. Uh, they, they did that whole one year where they froze all new features to focus just on security. That's yeah. what Windows XP Service Pack 3 was all about. So uh, it's potential that there's a lot of stuff in there. It's it's very likely. And I, I noticed that in this article, I followed it to the original article. I think this was one of those, um, was a slash dot? Yeah. So I followed it to the original article that the slash dot was uh, talking about. And there were uh, YouTube videos within that post of the person saying, oh, no, I, I compiled it and it worked. And here's, the, here's a YouTube video of me doing it. They're all struck by Microsoft uh, the copyright claims. Uh, yeah, so it's all, yeah, it's all down right now. Hmm. Oh, well, I, I just got mine compiled. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Good job. Good yeah. job, Peter. So, yeah. Uh, would it take uh, four minutes? No, it was nothing. Seconds. Nothing yeah. to it. Yeah, so it's yeah, straightforward. Oh, that's probably, they used the sound, that audio, uh, to flag it for a copyright yeah. violation. Now, I, I do have a little doubt. Uh, I'm a little skeptical because compiling, I mean, if you've ever self, just compiled software yourself, if you build something from source, it's a pain in the butt. you got to have the right compiler. There's all sorts of compiler flags that have to be set. You've got to have the right versions of libraries. It is hard to build code, uh, you know, compile code yourself, even when you have instructions on how to do it. So that some random guy we've never heard of was able to take a massive collection of source code and compile it into an actual running operating system, I'm a little skeptical on that. Microsoft well, should hire that guy. If it worked, that just goes to tell you how complete the code base was. And maybe they just stuck it through the compiler and everything went gravy. And Yeah, it's really a compliment you know. to Microsoft. What, what compiler, though? Because uh, who like, knows? A lot of it's written in C, or yeah. it can't be Visual Studio. <laughs> we just fire up VB6. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would assume it's some, some C code, but... Um, yep. uh, I, I am ignorant on this, so I'm, I'm talking out of a place of, of no I, information. I would assume that if Microsoft is striking their video down, because if it was bull... They'd, they'd be like, yeah, this guy's obviously full of crap. Yeah, go ahead, waste your time. But if they're going, no, 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 to take that down right now, yeah. they have IP that's being shown, and they don't want to see that. Yeah. All right, well, I'm ignorant on it, too, uh, so I'm glad I could help on that. Peter, on you ignorant slut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, once again, now, it, we almost uh, were safe for children the whole time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because that, that Daniel, was from SNL, though. It's okay, it was. right? Yeah, but Daniel <laughs> said uh, fornicator instead of the other oh, F word, yeah. so uh, good, we were clear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, well, I said dickish, so I don't know. Oh, yeah. Is that, does that count? We're in a gray area, yeah. I feel like, but yeah. we passed it there. Um, one of those shades of gray. Yeah. But then again, when we put all those things all together in one 30-second clip, that probably, that's probably enough. <laughs> uh, Mr. Van Rysdom, did you say the word dickish? <laughs> 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 uh, Was that what you said? Oh, well. Tarnation. 
Uh, all right, well, we've got a great webinar today. If you uh, happen to be watching this right when it comes out on Thursday, October 8th, it's Secrets of IT. Are your devices spying on you? Where Daniel will be live hacking into a real IP camera. Uh, but don't worry, if uh, you're listening to this later, you can go back and check out itpro.tv slash webinars and find the archive of that one. Should I be was, a lot of fun. I was going to do a fake IP camera, but then I thought, you know what? I'll go with a real, real one this time. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not like a, a Daniel cam. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a Daniel real Kidd. purchased on Amazon yeah. camera. Uh, but uh, we've also got one coming up later this month on Thursday, October 29th. Don is going to be doing lessons from the dark web using a mm. Raspi Onion router for secure internet access. So, I mean, what we were talking about earlier today with Brandon of, of you know, having your own little firewall, we, we could set up our, our own little Raspi uh, Onion router and, and be totally safe then, right? <laughs> totally safe. I mean, if the dark web's taught us anything, it's yeah. a very safe it's place. It's very safe, yeah. Uh, so again, <laughs> itpro.tv slash webinars. You can register for the, uh, for both of those uh, and also see the archives if you're catching it later. And while you're on that internet, head over to it or go.itpro.tv slash technado. Uh, you can get a team trial. Uh, you can also um, you know check it out and get a 30% off coupon code for yourself uh, for your personal plan. That's good for the lifetime of your subscription. So you get that price and you're locked in uh, even as we raise rates through the roof every year. I'm sure probably uh, <laughs> you are locked in. It's coming, so lock in yeah. now. That's a good problem, yeah. right? It's like a sense of urgency, I feel like. Uh, that's at go.itpro.tv slash technado. All right, well, thank you again to Brandon Hoffman for joining us. Uh, netenrich.com is their URL, so check them out as well. And, uh, well, you know, we made it through another one. Yep, and now we'll brace ourselves for another week of pandemic IT news. Yeah. I'm sure this week is the week that nothing will go wrong and it'll all be happy stories mm -hmm. about great new tech that's coming out. Yeah, if, if there's one thing I know, it's the closer we get to the election, the more positive and upbeat the news gets. <laughs> yeah, the stock market should be doing great today. So. <laughs> it's amazing. All right, everybody, uh, take it easy. We'll see you next time right here on TechNATO with Don Pizzette. Bye-bye.